This is the Scott Riley Show podcast. All right, let me get to our first guest today. Emma Riley has been writing for the last little while about Hamilton's food. What food is Hamilton? If you if you have someone come to this city and you're going to take them to the thing to the place where you can get something that just screams Hamilton that that jumps onto your taste buds and says this is Hamilton what is that food well she opened this up about I don't know a month or so ago to suggestions and it's now down to the final ten and Emma joins me now Emma how are you tonight I'm well Scott how are you I'm good let's go through these and let's break down the final ten and then I'm going to tell people how they can vote on this and they could even write to me here at 900CHML, and I will forward any votes that I get on to Emma so you can have people can have their vote. But let's start, because these are, and I think these are 10, when you go, put it this way, Emma, when you got the final 10, were there any that you looked at and you said, really? Well, there was one. I mean, the Karma Candy candy canes were a bit of a surprise. Okay. It's a, good, it's a good point. So these are candy canes that are made in Hamilton on Emerald Street. And they are the only candy cane manufacturer in Canada. Which so blows you, me away. Right? If you eat a candy cane at Christmas, chances are it's made on Emerald Street. Would have never, I never knew that. Would have never guessed that. Can't say that when I eat a candy cane, my mind immediately goes to Hamilton. No, perhaps not. That connection is not there. But perhaps yeah. it should. Exactly. If, it's, if they're all made here, maybe that's just an undercovered or an under underknown a lesser known thing. So Karma Candy Canes, number one. Well, not, we're in no particular order. Number one on the yeah. list. Uh, yeah. Number two on the list, Beach Road Kielbasa. Yeah, this has been a favorite from early on. It's, you know, Hamilton Classic, made here since, oh, I don't know, the 50s. Um, originally at Beach Road Deli, and now it's um, the, the home of Beach Road Kielbasa is Lock Street, the Lock Street Deli. And when I spoke to the owners there, they said that people used to literally line up around the block to get Beach Road Kielbasa, and you were limited to, I think, two pounds, and then you'd have to go to the back of the line. So people really obviously love this stuff and are willing to line up for it. Do you think, now, all the people you talk to, because I know you've talked to a lot of people, do they all know this one? Or is this one of those foods that if you, it's, what was that commercial? If you like it, you like it a lot. Yeah. Um, I think I think a little bit of both. I mean, it's one of those things, It can you can get it at Fortino's, for example. So I think it's relatively well known, but it is kind of a niche meat, you know? <laughs> A niche meat, yes. That, that, a that's niche how, meat. A niche meat, yes. That, that, you know, we, we, we like to have our niche meats. Well, there's uh, a lot of them, so yeah. Well, the next two on the, on the list, see, I would not necessarily argue, I'm not going to try and change people's minds, I wouldn't argue that these two foods are necessarily most synonymous with Hamilton, but I think the names may be most synonymous with Hamilton, or at least among them. The first one, Hutch's Fish and Chips. Everybody yep. knows Hutch's Fish and Chips, even if they've never eaten it. Yeah, they're delicious. They are they are pretty good. They are pretty good. And, and now, how many times have you been to Hutch's in your life? Oh, countless, honestly. Um, it's uh, it's one of those Hamilton institutions that you know it's it's part of the experience, like the experience, exactly the pleasure of going. Right, like you're sitting on the beach, and it's this kind of like retro diner, and you get the fish and chips, and it's just part of the Hamilton experience. You're not really a Hamiltonian until you've had Hutch's Fish and Chips. And see, again, I'm not arguing necessarily, I don't want to affect people's decision making here, but (laughs) I'm not arguing necessarily that that particular food is the most Hamilton food. It might be. But certainly, if you were to bring people to Hamilton, I think that for a lot of people is the place or one of the places you go to give them the Hamilton experience. 
Totally. It's a classic Hamilton moment. Number three, then, on the list, what I would I would argue would be right in that discussion point as well, of course, Easterbrook's hot dogs. Yes, Easterbrook's hot dogs, technically an Aldershot, although Hamilton, you know, has embraced it for its own. Again, it's one another one of those, like, quirky little establishments that if you're not from here, you might not get it. Like, you would walk in and be like, why is this appealing? <laughs> but the hot dogs are really delicious. It's always packed in there. It is. And if you go in there, it's just such an interesting place to look. They have all of these, you know, pictures and articles and, you know, business cards and, photo, like, everything plastering the wall. So it's a real, it's another one of those real classic Hamilton moments. A couple things. Uh, the piece that you wrote today, I had no idea that when it opened in 1930, no, it opened in 1926, and it was a tea house. Yes, tea and hot dogs together at last. Which is which is an odd combination, to be sure. <laughs> I don't I don't re- I don't remember a high tea in England where they throw out a bunch of hot dogs while you're sipping on your Earl Grey. Well, to be fair, I think it started as a tea house, and then they started somebody got hungry hot dogs, <laughs> and then eventually just morphed into fully hot dogs. I'm not sure if there was an overlap or not, but I, I kind of hope there wasn't. Because that, that is kind of gross. You're going to, like, dip your hot dog in the tea for... Uh, who knows? I mean, for all we know, Queen Elizabeth may just sit at Buckingham Palace at high tea every afternoon and have tea and wieners. We I just don't... Her. Well, I could. That's kind of a weird combination. <laughs> um, and the other thing about Easterbrooks, again, one of those places that is part of the experience of Hamilton, I think, is it has been in, I don't know how many TV shows and how many movies... Over the years, I remember there was one, I don't know if it was the first or the second Terry Fox movie, Mm. where it appears in there about five times. Every time they need a crowd picture of some people sitting around a diner, it's always Easterbrooks. And if you're from around here, you go, hey, there's Easterbrooks. Yeah, exactly. Everyone from around here knows where that is. Yeah. Roma Pizza on the list, number four. Yeah, big one. This was a, a popular choice from the very beginning, and it's been one, I have to say, it's been one of the front runners already on the first Really? Day. So, yeah, it, people love Roma Pizza, and it's one of those things where you either love it or you hate it. I know my husband, we talked about this last time I was on the show, but he loves it. He's crazy about it. Uh, my former colleague, Amy Kenny, messaged me on Twitter. She now lives in Yukon and was like, I wanted to get as far away from Roma Pizza as I possibly could. <laughs> So it's a love it or hate it thing, but obviously many people love it. And again, I think every item on this list, most of them have a sentimental value as well as a, well, yes. perhaps more of a sentimental value than a culinary value. So, you know, if you are, if you grew up in Hamilton, you ate Roma pizza at a birthday party or on a Friday night or at a potluck, like you, they, it was just everywhere. And a lot of people don't realize that it's only a Hamilton thing. And that's what I... Okay, first of all, for anyone who's not had it before, tell me if I'm wrong here, but it's crust and tomato sauce, basically. Yeah. That, I mean, it's it's like bread with tomato sauce on it. And so as someone who didn't grow up in Hamilton, I've lived here all my adult life, but didn't grow up here, I, I it, it shocked me when someone said, this is a Hamilton thing, because I just assumed bread with tomato sauce was... You get that anywhere, but it's not. It's, it has, honestly, it sounds so simple, and when you just describe it, almost gross, but I happen to love Roma Pizza. It's really good, and it's so easy, honestly. Like, there have been many nights as a mother of two young kids, uh-huh. like, just throw the Roma Pizza in the grocery bin, and, or grocery bin, your grocery basket, and you're done. Here you go, kids. And carb you, up. Exactly. And you throw in some, like, pre-cut celery and carrots, and all of a sudden, you've made a balanced meal. It's great. 
Uh, here's another favorite. Whether I don't know where it is, and I won't ask you to give away your voting yet, but I don't know where it is, but I know this one, if only for the name, because it's got a great name, is going to get some votes. The Tally Ho Beef Sandwich. <laughs> this one is also a niche meat. I would say. <laughs> yes, yes I, would, I would give you that. And I've, I, I, I'm going to make a confession here. I have never had a tally-ho beef well, sandwich. Well, then so I'm going to have to. Have, well, no, but seeing it on your list, it definitely... I'm go- my, I know my wife growing up, she grew up in Westdale, uh, was there all the time. I know, so it's, you have tally-ho beef sandwich, you go to Wheels Bakery for a chocolate chip bun, and you've had a full meal. Honestly, like for weeks, you've had your calorie quotient for like <laughs> three weeks, but it's they're you know they're very popular with Mac students, mm, um, yep. especially you know after the bars close and uh, they, Mac students don't drink, do they? Uh, well, I don't know. I've never been a Mac student actually, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, like they're they're just one of those like lovely, comforting greasy spoon sort of yes. things that just sort of, um, yeah, unpretentious and filling and good. Denninger sausage. Uh, yes. Now, first of all, I must say, as I'm going through this, I am getting exceedingly hungry. I had a small dinner, and this what you wrote and what we're talking about is killing me right now. But Denninger sausage, easy to know why this one's on the list. Yeah, it's classic Hamilton, the sausage of sausage and hot dog of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. There you go. The, yep, the hot dogs at the stadium are Dungers, and they're, you know, you can get the garden variety sort of bratwurst and, you know, um, just like honey garlic, but then they also have kind of kookier flavors, if that's your thing, kale and artisan beer sausage and chicken mango. So there's really, you know, something for everybody there. All of those, I, I was starving until you got to kale. I know, we've talked about kale Kale before. just throws me for a loop. For, for moments there, when I hear the word kale, I stop having an appetite, but then it comes back. But kale and sausage together. I, 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 could it, like, eliminate each other? Could you eliminate the goodness <laughs> of the kale by eating the hot dog? I, the, another niche meat. Niche meat. <laughs> niche uh, meat. Niche meat. Uh, gorilla cheese lumberjack sandwich. Now, gorilla cheese is honestly one of the great food truck local cuisine success stories, leaving aside the lumberjack sandwich in particular, just that particular gorilla cheese is a huge deal that has grown up around here. Well, it was Hamilton's first food truck. They were really the first people to really bring that um, genre to Hamilton. And the story is just so lovely and such a kind of classic Hamilton moment. The owner, Graham Smith, had been laid off from U.S. Steel, and he went through a sort of second career program through the government after the recession, and this is what he came up with. This was his final project. So it's beloved, not only because the food is delicious, but also because it's this classic sort of Hamilton story, steel worker, you know, new Hamilton meets old Hamilton. A lot of people, I think, again, for sentimental reasons, really, uh, really like this one. And for those who have never had a Gorilla Cheese Lumberjack sandwich, it is bacon, Granny Smith apple, maple syrup, and medium-aged cheddar. Which, very good. Uh, it just, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It really is. All right. Uh, one of my favorites on the list, because uh, I love donuts, Granddad's Donuts. Now, we live in a town where it's almost sacrilege to mention any other donut store other than you-know-what <laughs> or any other coffee store other than you-know-what. But Granddad's Donuts makes it impossible not to. They're so good. And, you and big, huge. Yeah, they're massive. They're uh, baked fresh in the store every day. And they're just kind of, uh, the owner there described them as the donuts you remember, you know, like the donuts you remember loving growing up. 
Um, they're sort of those classic flavors that you don't get anymore, like uh, Walnut Crunch and Orange Twist. And the other day I had a Canadian Maple one that was so good. Like, honestly, they're just really well done. And the store itself, again, has a sort of retro feel. A lot of these places are very, like, comforting, homey, retro, sort of harken back to yesteryear. And this is definitely within that category. Well, and the thing about it, too, uh, Emma, that is when we were a kid, and you had a donut, it took up your whole hand to hold the donut. <laughs> now you grow up, and I, the other day, my wife brought home a box of wagon wheels. Remember wagon wheels? Yep. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was a kid, you would open a wagon wheel, and it seemed like a huge thing. Now, I'm assuming that I've grown, but these things have also shown. It was tiny. It's yeah. like two and a half bites, and the wagon wheel is gone. It's like, what? So the reason I bring that up, the grandpa's, the granddad's donuts you feel again like you're that kid holding the giant donut. That's the good part about it. you got a big hunk of carb in your hand when you're biting into this thing. Yeah, and they've been, I have to say, they're another front runner. They Is that right? have been very popular. Yeah, and the sure. last one on the list, and I left it till the last because it is... If there is anything that is really synonymous with Hamilton, again, not telling people what the food is, but the name, the title, Tim Horton's Double Double and a Donut, which is, which is, I mean, I think if you were to go across the country and ask, that's the thing everyone would say about Hamilton. I think so, too. And I think that a lot of people are initially drawn to that. I got a couple emails and phone calls where people said, you know, I was going to say Tim Horton's, but then I thought, no, you know, like, it's really interesting that people... Too stereotypical. Yeah, and I think it's sort of almost like not original at this point. You know what I mean? Like it's not something that's just here, even though it started here. And we obviously identify closely with it. I mean, you know, there's uh, Tim Horton Stadium and the original store. And obviously it's a part of our psyche collectively in Hamilton. But I think people are sort of digging a little deeper well, I <laughs> into, will, their ba- into their bellies. My, food. my only complaint with this list, and it's not you because people voted on this, is that Wheels Chocolate Chip Bun as a meal is not listed on this thing. Because that is, if I have somewhere I have to go, if anyone's never had a wheel cho- Wheels Chocolate Chip Bun, Wheels is a little bakery in Westdale next to... Uh, Next to the shoppers uh, on the main drag there, uh, best thing in the city. Although you may need an insulin shot after you finish eating it. <laughs> it, it, it is a little, you know, hefty. It is a little hefty. And the funny thing is a lot of people messaged me this, today and said, like, why didn't you include this place? Right? It's a travesty. <laughs> like, what about Sweet Paradise? What about Poke Bar? Like, how dare you not include, you know, this blah, blah, blah. It was open and- for voting. That's what I, you know, and I said, sorry, you know, you missed the nomination, guys. But people obviously feel so passionate about food in Hamilton, yes. and I think it's great. It's been just a deluge. It's been so fantastic. So I've gotten, like, probably close to 75 responses just today. So it's been a real fun exercise, and I think it'll be really interesting to see which one comes out on top. There are f- some more days. People have a little more time to get their voting. But if they want to vote... How do they vote for this? How do they choose? First of all, they go to the spec.com and find your story so they can review it again. But then where do they go and vote? Well, there's a couple different options. You can tweet at me at Emma at the spec. So it's just at and then E-M-M-A-A-T-T-H-E-S-P-E-C. You'll find me. And then use the hashtag city dish. Or you can email me at eriley at the spec.com. And Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y. Or you can call me at 905-526-2452. And to make it even easier, because people hear my email address on here all the time, if you want to send it to radley at 900chml.com, 
and just tell me which one you would choose. I will forward any emails I get on to Emma immediately, so she will have those as well. Emma, I know you got to go. Uh, you got a thing you got to do, but I appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. I could talk about food all day with you. We all, yeah, I know. We all could. And, and now I'm going to have to send Will out during the break to get me something to eat because <laughs> I am just starving here. Emma, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Ten years ago, this very minute, right now, the Hamilton Bulldogs were on the ice at what was then Cops Coliseum playing the Hershey Bears in what would turn out to be the final game of the Calder Cup Championship because midway through the third period, my next guest scored a shorthanded goal at the end of a long two-on-one to give the home side the title and to give this city its first and its only professional hockey championship. We've only had the one. We've had a lot of, not not a lot, we've had a number of teams only had the one professional hockey championship. That guy who scored that goal was A.J. Baines, who joins me now from Kamloops, B.C. A.J., how are you tonight? I'm doing good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing great. Kate, con- I mean, do you say congratulations 10 years later? Congratulations on the anniversary. <laughs> thank you, thank you. In the uh, in the spirit of uh, this year's Stanley Cup playoffs, I actually watched the replay today and then went back and slowed it down to make sure you were on side on the two on one that your skate blade was down. <laughs> you know what? That's kind of cool. Yeah, I, 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 it makes a lot of sense. I wonder if it was. What'd you see? Oh, you no, you were good. You were you were good. good. Yeah, it would it would be horrible to think that ten years later we'd have to go back and get you guys to all put the equipment on and then like replay from there. Yeah, I think Lappy would have he would have done something to the referee. Yeah, that would have been ugly. Uh, that was Max Lapierre, who was the other guy who passed you the puck. But um, it seems to me, AJ, that boy, ten years has gone by very, very quickly. At least that's how it feels. Yeah, definitely, it's gone by quick. And there's times where it's like, man, it, that was it only ten years ago. You know, it feels like it's even longer. So. It's kind of a bit of both, you know. Sometimes it feels like it's, I can't believe how fast it went. And then other times, you know, a lot's happened, you know, I'm sure in everyone's lives where it's like, wow, you know, it's a, it's a while ago. What What do you remember about that night? Like, is it well, very vivid to you or is it a little blurry, you know, because of everything that happened? You know, I, it's a bit of both. I think the the goal, um, the game uh, was, a, was a blur. You know, you're just you're in the moment there, you're kind of focused on your next shift and everything kind of zooms by. I remember the crowd and just how crazy it was when the goal went in and when we were celebrating on the ice, um, you know, you remember your teammates, you remember, I remember my family was there uh, in from Vancouver uh, and Kamloops uh, to, to see the game. I had some friends come in from out of town, uh, some relatives from out of town. Uh, but yeah, the, the crowd was definitely uh, something you know, that you, you'll never forget. And uh, the feeling of winning, you know, that championship, it was the only championship that I ever won. So it's tough not to remember that. Um, and like I said, to do it at home was, uh, and the place was sold out. It was, yeah, it was, it was crazy. And w- one thing that I always remember, you, when you were breaking out on that two-on-one, you were skating as hard as you can. We'll talk about that in a second. But you were skating as hard as you can towards what I think is the greatest sign ever held up by any fan at any arena for you that was in the end zone. Tell, tell me about the sign. Yeah, oh, is that the... The MVP. The MVP one, yeah, yeah, yeah. My friend Rana in, uh, in Hamilton, actually, I, I actually spoke with him this morning, which is, uh, which is hilarious because he, he re- first one who sent me a message this morning, even before you, uh, 
to know that we were talking. He said, hey, congrats on the 10-year anniversary. And, uh, no, it was great. I mean, he had that sign. He came down and, and got to be with us in the dressing room after the game. And uh, it, was, it was hilarious. It's my teammates uh, had a real good chuckle on the sign, too. Well, you are, you are one of the few East Indian players who have ever probably played professional. There have not been that many. And so the MVP, by the way, what, is, what did he say on the MVP? <laughs> Most valuable Punjabi. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, it, it was actually pretty hysterical. All right, so that two-on-one, because that was the goal that decided things, and people can go online, it's, it's on there, there's lots of views of it, Derek Wills is calling the goal. Um, Max Lapierre went on to have a whole bunch of NHL games, he was a guy who played for Montreal, played for Vancouver in the Stanley Cup Finals, he was at that point, the guy who was on the two-on-one with you, he was at that point still a really hot NHL prospect, I don't want to say you weren't, but you were more of a guy who'd been around the league for a while and was was more of a veteran guy. And I don't remember throughout the whole season that you were necessarily the fastest guy on the ice. But on that two on one, you looked like you were skating about as fast as you ever had. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was not the fastest guy. It's funny you said that because I remember after, like the day after, and uh, Max, I was talking. Max says he he watched the goal a few times. In his French accent, things you you don't believe how fast we were going. You have to see this goal, and he watched it. And I remember watching it, and he was right. Yeah, we were. I don't know what happened there. I mean, he was always able to fly, but I, don't know, I got excited. Uh, <laughs> I guess I got excited. Do you, Do you remember what happened after you scored? Do you remember what happened? I mean, in the pile. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I went down. I got up. I, I slid. I, I got up, and Max uh, tackled me. And my helmet popped off, but his hand was right behind my head, and I think I crashed into the end boards. If his hadn't had to have been there, I probably would have got split open in the back. There. <laughs> would I it think, have been? Uh, would it have been Jano, worth it? Jano, uh, I think it was Jano jumped on, jumped on right after, and uh, yeah. It, <laughs> would it have been worth it to take some stitches for that goal? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you guys then, and one of the things that stands out about this team, of course, the, the star of that playoff run was was Carey Price. And w- really one of the few guys, and again, we'll talk about this in a second, but one of the few guys who's really gone on to have huge NHL success from that team. But when, you, when, when he showed up, he was a 19-year-old who had just finished his year in junior. When he first showed up, did you look at him and all the other guys look at him and go, this is a guy who is the absolute real deal? Or did you look at him and go, this is a guy who is as hot a goalie right now as we've ever seen, but I have no idea if he can sustain this? Well, he came in at the end of the season, played a couple games, um, you know, looked good. And, you know, we knew he was young and we obviously knew he was a hot prospect and, and obviously had had the great World Juniors earlier that season. Um, but, I mean, going into the playoffs, like, you don't you don't know what's going to happen. And um, he, he got a couple regular season games in, and then Donnie came in and said, yeah, Kerry's going to be starting game one. And, you know, we were we were, you know, we were pretty confident with any of our goalies, to be, to be honest, going into the playoffs. We had a, you know, we had a real good team. Uh, we had a real solid decor that uh, I, I, I thought they were unbelievable all playoffs, especially in the uh, series against Hershey. If you watch those games, man, they didn't, they didn't give Hershey too much room inside, and that was the, the number one team. But Carey was, was so calm and cool and I think, you know, it has such a great effect on the on the whole team. It kept everyone calm, cool, you know, whether he let in a goal, he, his heart rate was just so low. And you 
typically don't see that from a goaltender. So, but you're that, all, all season though, AJ. The thing about this was all season, you guys, your goalie had been Yaroslav Halak, who went on and still is in the NHL, but had a good has had a good NHL career, and he had had a great season. I think he had like twelve shutouts or something that year, and was just terrific. Yeah. And then the season ends, and. Yeah, yeah. Inexplicably, he was, he he was. and inexplicably, then Bob Gainey and the Canadians say, "You know what? We're going to let Halak go play in the World Championships and give you this kid from Junior, who's had, as you say, two professional games." Honestly, at that point, did you think, "Oh man, we're kind of screwed here"? If, if you take away our best player, you know, it's, that's, it's a it's a great question. I remember a lot of the fans were pissed off. There was uh, there was stuff in the media and paper that was said. It was questioning Bob. We uh, it, 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 we kind of discussed it, but I, it, for whatever reason, we didn't make too much of a big deal out of it. Uh, I think everyone was just kind of so focused on their job. But I, I remember talking after, and uh, yeah, I mean, if you're following the team and you you said no, we're sending your MVP and the, the goalie of the year to the World Championships, and we're going to stick a 19 year old kid in that. I mean, it's, it's to look back on it now. Oh, it looks great now. In but retrospect, it looks terrific, but at the at the time, it doesn't necessarily yeah. look so good. No, it's a, it was a risky move, and uh, that's why, you know, Bobby Ganey is who he is. <laughs> well, and... and I was one of those ones who was questioning Bob Ganey at the start, I'll be honest, because I, I, you know, again, I, I thought the same thing, and it, Carey Price proved everybody wrong. I will say this till the day I die. If you hooked Bob Ganey or anyone else from the Canadians up to a lie detector machine and asked them if they thought Carey Price was going to do that, and that's why they let Yaroslav Halak go to the World Championships, there is no way they would pass that test. Nobody thought Carey Price was going to do that. No, it's, it's, nobody can predict the future, right? If you got me on time, I, I got a hilarious story about Go. Gary before yeah. that playoff. Um, I lived with uh, Chipchura, D'Agostini, and O'Byrne, and, and we were at the apartment. And you know, These guys were 20 years old, and Carrie uh, was staying at the hotel, and we we Carrie came over for dinner one of the first nights he, he got to Hamilton. So I was the designated chef. I was the old guy living there. But uh, we're chatting, and, and Steve Ganey, who's a, a really close friend of mine, Bob's son, he was assistant coach of the Camus Blazers that year, and he called me up, and uh, we were having a chat, and and he said, hey, I heard you guys called up Carey Price, and I said, yeah. He says, you know, I, I saw him play in Tri-Cities a ton this year. He's a great goalie. I said, yeah, you know, obviously at camp and the World Juniors and everything. Uh, I go, you know, he's, he's actually right here, and he says, and Steve says, you know, funny, uh, interesting story. He goes, in 1985, Montreal called up uh, – a kid from uh, the Quebec Junior League and put them to their farm team in, I think it was Fredericton? Yeah. Sherbrooke? Sherbrooke. Yeah, I think so. Sherbrooke, yeah. And he goes, he's 19 years old, and he they threw him in that, and he went on to win the MVP, and the team won the Calder Cup. And I was like, let me guess Patrick Waugh. And he goes, exactly. So I had the phone up here, and Kerry and Chipper and, and Daggs were playing Xbox. And I said, hey, Kerry, you hear that? Uh, 22 years ago, Patrick Waugh came up as a 19-year-old led the Habs farm team to a Calder Cup, and he got MVP. And, like, just this is the way Kerry was. As he's playing the game, he just glanced over at me, and he goes, so that's it? That's all I got to do? <laughs> all right. And then two months later, we won it, and then we were joking about what he said there. <laughs> you, yeah, well, you know what? He was relatively calm. I remember hearing a story that before the championship game that he was actually asleep in his stall. 
or had yeah, like nodded, he, nodded off for a little nap before the game in his stall. Yeah, he might have been. He, he might have been. I think. <laughs> had you? Do you ever? I mean, this was not. It's not the Stanley Cup, and I understand that it's not exactly the same that way. But do you ever pull out your ring ten years later or along the way and 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 take a look at it? You know, I I had I actually got it in the bank right now. I actually put it in there. Uh, we got like, our place got broken into, and uh, it got stolen. And then anyway, somehow it made its way back to me. Uh, that's that's another story, but uh, <laughs> I, I I ended up putting it in the bank uh, just a little while back. But uh, yeah, I would I would uh, you know the odd time look at it, and I think it's something even when I'm older I'll be able to look at it. Maybe when you know like my, my kids a little bit older and stuff, and and share it there. But uh, you know it's it's to me it's the second toughest trophy to win in the world. I mean I think hockey the hockey grind is 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 so tough. And uh, I think the HL is really tough because sometimes teams get uh, dismantled by the NHL teams at yes. times of the year. There's nothing you can do. So and I, we're very fortunate, and I, I feel blessed and, and fortunate to, to be able to, to be lucky enough to win a championship at, at the Calder Cup. It's, uh, I, I think it was, you know, it's, it's obviously something you'll never forget. Well, and you talk about the grind, and what m- some people won't know is the grind is probably more difficult for you because you're a diabetic who was wearing an insulin. You probably still do, but you were wearing an insulin pump underneath your equipment as you're playing. And we, I mean, we all know that you know people can deal with diabetes now, but it's still it has an impact, and and that had to make when you play that many games in that short a time, and you're dealing with all that stuff with blood sugar and everything. That had to make it difficult too. You know what? Yeah, I mean, it, it does. Our trainers were awesome. I mean, Luke and Davey, Johnny, like they were, Darren, they, they took really good care of me. And the stuff that we have access to nowadays, I mean, compared to yes. 70s or, or when Bobby Clark and them were playing, like it's it's not even close. So I, I actually think I was pretty fortunate to be playing at the time I did. <laughs> well, there's a great story uh, that actually comes out of your diabetes. And uh, you know, I think you know this story, but um, the Bulldogs, because of you, the Bulldogs have given over the years some money, a lot, quite a bit of money actually, to diabetes causes around this city. And the right. year you were here, there was a kid who was at that time a grade four kid from Dundas who was playing for the Hamilton Junior Bulldogs AAA team. kid whose name was Riley McRae. And right. I think you met him at least once, but he was a kid who looked up to you because he heard that, you know, the, one of the guys who was one of the captains of the Bulldogs is in the same situation I am, wearing an insulin pump and doing this stuff. And that kid, because, well, he looked up to you and he tried to model himself after you, that kid actually went on to play in the OHL, which was, I thought, really uh, kind of a cool thing that um, well, that you had I- inspired that guy to go on and do that. That's pretty awesome to hear. Uh, yeah, I, I remember the name Riley. I remember meeting. I I, I didn't know his. Uh, well, that's thank you for sharing. That. Yeah, went on to play with the Erie Otters for uh, parts of three years, and so it was. Yeah, it was very wow. cool. Uh, very. We only have a couple minutes left here, but th- that team, when you win a championship in the AHL, the expectation, I think, AJ, from a lot of people is there's a lot of guys in this team that are going to go up and play and be a star in the NHL for a long time, and certainly Carey Price has. And Mikhail Grabowski has had a good long career, and Max Lapierre had a bunch of games, five hundred or something in the NHL. But the rest of the team, guys went up, guys played, guys had drinks of water or cups of coffee or whatever. But it was not a team that dumped ten or eleven or twelve guys into lifelong NHL careers. Why not? 
Yeah, you know, I, I remember talking. Sometimes it's opportunity. It's uh, like because I'm I, I I agree with you. I would have thought you know at least a handful of guys would have you know still been playing in the NHL at the time. We were you know we had a lot of young prospects and but you know sometimes you just timing is wrong wrong organization with a different organization it's it's tough but i mean it's a great point but looking at that team i think that goes to show you we didn't have much i think it shows what how great the people were on that team because if you don't have all these so-called guys that go on to long careers in the nhl you you got to have quite a bit of character and i think that team was loaded with character and i mean i look uh, Jansevsky, Archer, JP Cote, like we, our back end and the rest of them, like those guys were just, I mean, great leaders and, and up front. I, I, you can go down the whole list. It was just a, just really, really, uh, good people. And I think that's, that's why we won the, probably why we won the, we won the cup. Well, it is uh, it is fun to think back. I can't believe, as I say, it's been 10 years, but uh, it was fun today. I watched a couple times again the replay of uh, Lapierre passing you the puck and you scoring and then uh, nearly getting your head knocked off by uh, <laughs> by getting smashed into the boards in the celebration. But listen, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to catch up, and uh, you're working as a real estate agent now, right? Yeah, 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 I can't work there. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time, AJ. Great catching up with you, and uh, again, congrat- 10 years. Congratulations. It's uh, well, Time flies. Scott, always a pleasure talking to you, and uh, keep in touch here, okay? Will do. A.J. Baines, uh, who was the guy who scored the winning goal in Hamilton's only pro hockey championship. That's that's remarkable. By the way, so A.J. works as a real estate agent. This is I, I wrote this today in the paper. You can read it, but I'll just throw it out there for you. A guy named Corey Urquhart was on the team. He now owns and operates a vegan restaurant out in the East Coast. Uh, Eric Manlow is a cop in Niagara. So if you're being arrested and you see the name Manlow, Say, hey, didn't you play for the Bulldogs? Uh, Ryan O'Byrne, who went on to have a long-ish NHL career, went back to Cornell University and graduated with his degree in hospitality management, I believe it was recently. Uh, Philip Solvay, who was a third-string goalie, is now a player agent based out of Quebec. Dan Janseski, that AJ referred to, is now a Tim Hortons owner. Matthew Biron, who is the brother of um, uh, other Biron, uh, who, who was the goalie, and is now on TSN. Uh, he's a firefighter. The guy's just everywhere. And the scary part about it, all those guys are retired now. Those were kids when they were winning the Calder Cup, and now they are retired. Time flies. Ten years. Ten years. Back after this. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. So, earlier... Well, yesterday, but it's in the paper today. Andrea Horvath, the leader of the provincial NDP, because we are a year out from the provincial election now. So, of course, everything is ramping up and it's everyone, you know, the, the party leaders, even though they are not officially, quote, quote, in campaign mode, everyone's already in campaign mode. The parties are already gearing up. We are, this is going to be a long, protracted, drawn out campaign. So Andrea Horvath today gives an interview in which she said this. Here's a quote from her. It's a funny thing about the liberals, said the NDP leader. They tend to steal our ideas and then really fumble the ball when it comes to implementation or getting it right. So they like to take our ideas and then mess around with them so they don't actually come out to be exactly what we would hope. So she says the provincial liberals, the Kathleen Wynne government, is stealing the NDP's ideas and then trying to claim them as their own. Are they? 
Henry Jacek is a political science professor at McMaster University. You hear him all over the place here on CHCH. He was on there tonight, I know. He joins us now. Henry, thanks for doing this tonight. No problem, Scott. So is stealing ideas, philosophical ideas, campaign ideas, is that a thing in politics? Is, is Can you steal an idea or is it anything that's out there, it's up for grabs? And if you happen to say it and I'm in power and I happen to take it, well, too bad, you lost. Well, you know, there's no political copyright in in politics. You don't co- you can't copyright your ideas, your policies, anything like that. It's a, it's a completely free open market where you can if you think somebody else's ideas can work, you can you can say, ah, "I'm in favor of that." So, yeah, so it's it's completely open. It's not like, uh, you know, the business world where if I invent uh, mm-hmm. a better product, I can copyright it. Uh, no, that doesn't work in politics. It, 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 that doesn't exist. Okay, now legally, clearly, you're absolutely right. Uh, that you know, there's no nothing that would stop you from doing it for ethical or moral or political reasons. Is there any reason why you shouldn't take an idea that you think is a good one that might work? Well, I don't know. Uh, you might look at, at life, uh, have this philosophical position: is that uh, you know, I may have a particular position or idea or way of doing things, and then I suddenly discover that. Somebody else can do it better, or they have a better idea, and I drop something that I may have believed or, you know, uh, you know, argued for 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 a great part in my life. Uh, you might even take it to promises. I often ask people, you know, they complain politicians don't keep their promises, and I ask, well, should a politician keep a bad promise? Mm. Right. So you know, we learn. That's that's a great thing about human beings is we we do continually learn. Some of us learn faster at different points in our life than others, but we continually learn, and we may, you know, we, you know, uh, and so we just fess up to it and say, well, somebody else had the better idea. I was wrong, and, and, and I think we sort of even generally often admire somebody who said, you know, what I told you yesterday, I really believed it, I made the argument for it, but today... I think something else, and I think I was wrong uh, yesterday, but today I think I'm right. Henry, is there any difference, though? Because as the as we get closer to an election, generally parties will come out with something printed, which is their platform. It's a little more formal. It's a little more official. Right. Right. Uh, it may still be a load of hooey, but nonetheless, it's what they're saying they're going to do. Uh, as you say, promises don't always get kept. Once the thing is in writing, does it, if Andrew, if we were closer to the election and the NDP had put out their platform and had their ideas in writing, and then the Liberals decided to adopt it, does that change anything when it seems a lot more like you can actually point to what the NDP said or some other party? And does that change it? Well, I might put it this way: suppose I'm a person and I say, "Well, I don't. I'm not all that happy with Kathleen Wynne as a leader." Uh, I'm generally a liberal, but I'm not. I'm not feeling right. And then I, but I, but then uh, the liberals take one of uh, an NDP idea and they say we're going to do it. Uh, that's what we're going to do if we get reelected. And I think to myself, well, I've usually been a liberal, and now they have this great idea. They've agreed with the NDP, so maybe I'll be more comfortable going mm. uh, to, to to support my traditional party. And then add to it, maybe the liberals will change their leader, and I'll like the new leader better. So maybe a year before the election, I might say, well, I'm, I'm drifting over to the NDP, but within a year, you know, as, as, as you know, the liberals take ideas I like from the NDP, and I say, well, maybe I'll go back to my traditional party. And I think there's a lot of people like that, actually. And I think that's what the liberals are counting on. They're counting on, you know, uh, 
you know that the uh, that their party is going to pick up good ideas and right now the the place to go is the NDP for a couple of reasons first of all uh there is a overlap there's about in Ontario maybe 15% of the population who could go either liberal or NDP and so you know the 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 liberals need to keep those people with them they had them the last time that's why they had a majority uh, if they uh, don't have those people the next time, then most of those people will probably, at the end of the election, I suspect, drift over to the NDP. So that that's why they would do that sort of thing. And if they change their leader, if, if I mean, if the uh, liberals decided, and particularly the premier decided, I can't personally win another election and she steps aside, then they'll get, uh, and they get a new leader, well... Uh, the new leader may look a lot better than the old leader, you know. Well, and this is this is the thing. When I hear this answer or this this quote today about how the liberals are stealing the ideas, and and right. I don't know if they really are. I mean, they could be. I mean, the point is to me, it seems like in this current political climate, if they were, it's a pretty smart pretty savvy political move because many of the things the liberals are doing already are leaning pretty hard left. And now if you take another one or two of the NDP's ideas, you are really squeezing them into a very small space that they have now to carve out their identity. Exactly. And that's and they, essentially they don't want people who are, as I said, in that 15 percent to drift over to the NDP. They want to keep them with them. And as long as the liberals can get most of those people, plus their regular supporters, they're they're in a very good position in this province, and uh, that's that I think is the strategy that uh, that they want. And the, and the liberals have been doing this for years. They've been doing this for years at the federal level, at the provincial level. That when they seem to approach an election, if they see that they're in trouble, they start saying, "Well, what what you know? Let's go to the NDP store and let's do some shoplifting." Mm. Because that's essentially what they do. And now they can't. They don't do it completely now. The, if I'm Andrea Horvath giving a more sophisticated uh, or a nuanced uh, understanding of what's going on, okay, the, the uh, minimum wage thing, I think the liberals anticipated the NDP was going to announce that as part of their party platform, so they preempted it by saying, we're going to do it before the NDP had a chance. Now, then we have a different type of issue like pharmacare, the paying of, of drugs by the government, pharmaceutical drugs, where the uh, liberals said, okay, we'll do it, I think, for people 25 and under. And Andrea Horvath says, no, we're going to bring that in for everybody. So clearly there the NDP has the stronger policy on, on providing drugs than the liberals do, which often happens. And I think this is maybe what Andrea Horvath is thinking about is, yeah, they've taken this idea of paying for people's drugs, but they're only going to do it for people 25 and under but we're going to do it for everybody, so we're going to do it the right way. But again, this gets to the point I was just saying, and that is if the, this is, these are already very leftward-leaning policies. If right. the NDP goes too much further left yeah. in, a, in a province that is so far in the hole now financially, people, will they not look at this and say, wait a second, we can't afford. You, become, you almost start to look like an extremist with a policy that could never actually work because we're so far in debt right now that you, you, it, I don't see them having a lot of room to go much further. Well, certainly there's a lot of people who would make that argument, and they believe it, and I think they can make you know, a, a fairly credible case about it. The really critical group, once the, people who are important here, are that 15% mm-hmm. who I said can go either way. Those 15% have been the most studied group of people in Ontario for the last two generations, <laughs> yeah. uh, certainly the la- so since the last generation for sure. 
And we know a lot about those people. And the one thing we know about these people, if you say, are you worried about the government being in a deficit position? They're going to say, I don't care. That's the politician's problem. It's not my problem. They will say, the only deficit I'm worried about is my household deficit. So while there are a lot of other people who worry about that deficit, the peop- these, these people in the 15%, they don't care about that. So you can, you can talk to them till you're blue in the face. They're not going to worry about that. They're, they're worried about other things. These are people who are worried about what I call bread and butter. Well, sure. political scientists call bread and butter issues. They're worried about, you know, do we have a good income coming into my household? That is okay. Do we do, do does you know do the people who in our household who should have good paying permanent jobs do they have them, uh, or you know or don't they? Or if they're working at jobs that are you know not so well paying, then they may start worrying about the mi- minimum wage, and then they start worrying about well, I get sick and I have to buy medicine, but I don't have a drug plan. So what do I do? Is it food or drugs? What what do so the, the, these these people worry about those kinds of problems. They don't worry about how the government's going to pay for it. They worry about what they have to pay for. And that, this, as I said, this is a swing group. This can swing back and forth between the NDP and the Liberals, and that's what makes them so uh, you know so uh, impre- you know a center of attention between those two groups. So a year out now. Right. You know, we know, even though we don't have their platform per se, we know pretty much what the conservatives are all about. And we now are seeing pretty much what the liberals are all about. What does the NDP do at this point to make itself relevant? Well, I think the NDP is counting on 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 things more than policy. I mean, they have, uh, well, there is one policy, though, that they are counting on, and and the liberals can't get out from under this. And they are attacking the Liberals for the partial privatization of Ontario Hydro. And they make the argument that because of this partial privatization, that it's going to drive up the energy prices that ordinary people have to pay. And again, they're talking to that 15% that I mentioned who are worried about energy prices, you know, cooling their house in the summer and heating their house in the winter. And so the problem is the Liberals are stuck with their policy. They can't... They can't say right now, oh, we made a mistake about partial no. privatization, and we're going to change it. They're in too deep. They, they, they simply can't do that. So, they're, so that's, that's one policy where the NDP thinks they've got a compelling argument. They know people are worried about energy, electricity prices. They have a st- their argument is that energy prices are going to get worse primarily because of this partial privatization. It may be true. It may not be true. But a lot of people believe that. They find that a compelling a compelling explanation. But the other thing the NDP is hoping for, and I always kid the New Democrats when I talk to them, is that when they go to bed at night, they pray, oh, God, please don't let Kathleen Wynne resign, because they believe, and I think they've got very good reason to believe, that there's a lot of people in this province who really believe that Kathleen Wynne should retire. They don't want her as premier anymore. Well, 73% in a recent forum poll said they disagree with the job she's doing, and only 1 in 10 say they trust her. So essentially then, if you've got the NDP and the Liberals who are philosophically close enough that you could decide, you could almost flip a coin if you're on that side of the political spectrum, how much then will the NDP, do you expect over the next year, to be making this even more than it has been a leadership showdown that, listen, we're going to do essentially the same things, but our leader, Andrea Horvath, is going to do it way better, way more responsibly than Kathleen Wynne, who's made a complete mess of all these concepts. 
they're going to emphasize the leader for sure. I was just looking at a piece of mail at the uh, an envelope that they had sent out, and I noticed uh, this came from NDP headquarters, Ontario NDP headquarters. And Ontario NDP was in very small letters on the outside. Andrea Horvath's name was really big on the outside of the envelope. They're not going to talk. They're going to talk. This is the party of Andrea Horvath. They're not going to say that emphasize they're the they're the party of the NDP because they know if if other things being equal, if they ask people, do you want a liberal government or an NDP government? People will probably say, well, all things being equal, I prefer a liberal government because, you know, a lot of people will think, well, the NDP will be too extreme. So what they have is they have a leader out there that people trust. People trust and they like Andrea Horvath. That's her great attribute. And uh, she, she, and that's why they want people to think in the election campaign, you can trust Andrea Horvath. She's going to take care of you. She, she thinks like you. She knows how the common person and the common family, uh, you know, operates. They, she knows their fears, their their needs, and she's going to take care of it. And I think that's going to be probably theme number one by the NDP. And and it's and of course because they look at the public opinion polls and they see people really do like her. So what you do is essentially you emphasize what the people are telling you what they like. There's an old military argument is that if you're fighting a battle, you reinforce success, not failure. So if you're so if something's working well, boom, you put more resources into it. Henry and, that, and, that's, and that's what I think they're going to do. And so if they can, if Kathleen Wynne doesn't resign, and they're going to emphasize Andrea Horvath, and they're going to talk a lot about energy prices and how this partial privatization mm. of Ontario Hydro is going to drive up your energy prices. And I think that'll be you know, the main campaign that they're going to run. Last thing then. If you've got two parties that are singing a similar song but are parsing the differences now of what, you know, for that 15% that you talked about that we're wrestling over, would the wisest move by the Conservatives be basically to stand off to the side, just keep your mouth shut, don't say anything, let the two of them beat the pulp out of each other, and they'll split that 15% and then we'll win quite handily because we have not sustained the same damage? Well, that would be nice, except they have a problem, is that people don't have um, an, an, an image of who their leader is, of Patrick Brown. They don't. It's not they dislike him. They just don't know him. And I, I you know, I, I often, when I'm in conversations, and I'll, I'll just raise, and I want to see, you know, with ordinary folks, and I just sort of say, well, what do you think of Patrick Brown? And they'll say, Geez, I don't know much about him. I don't hear anything about him. I don't know him. And then if they see a picture of him, they say, you know, I don't know if I trust this guy. See, the other thing is that when you put Andrea Horvath's picture right next to his, and they'll say, well, Andrea, they get a feeling, a warm and fuzzy feeling about Andrea and, and, and not about Patrick Brown. And I think the reason, one of the part of the reason why Andrea does so well is she was a counselor on city council. Party leaders who have come up through the ranks, who have, you know, if you're sitting on a city council, a town council, you really have to, you're rubbing shoulders with, with ordinary folks all the time, and you know their problems. And when you go up into the federal or provincial level, you don't forget those problems. You know how ordinary folks think, and you know your job is to make, you know, take care of those people and make sure you take care of those concerns. And that's, that's what they got there. But Patrick Brown, he's never been on a council. He's not... You know, he, he's, he, he basically has had an experience mainly in his party, 
he was up in Ottawa as an MP, but he was a backbench MP. So, you know, he, he, he really gives the impression that he never spent a lot of time really understanding ordinary folks. He, underst- he understands, you know, the, the people who work inside the Conservative Party, and there's no doubt about that. But, he, you know, you get the feel, you know, people sort of give me the, the view that they, they, they just don't feel that this is somebody they like. Uh, now, if he can come up in the next year and, and make himself likable, he could be the premier because uh, he, he has a solid base of conservatives. They're, you know, uh, they're, they have a solid 25, 30 percent base. Uh, if he could make himself likable and get another 5 or 10 percent, mainly of the more conservative liberals, well, he could be the premier of the province. But can he do that? I haven't seen that yet, but, you know, who knows? We have a year. Professor Henry J. Sec, really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this. Okay, fun talking to you, Scott. Uh, the, the, it's back to the very beginning of this topic. I'm not entirely sure that it's um, a, an argument that is going to resonate with a lot of people that somebody else is stealing our ideas. I'm not sure that's going to work. I'm not sure that's that 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 point helps Andrew Horvath, and here's why. If there is, as Professor Jacek just said, if there's a good idea, isn't this now? I'm not arguing that all the ideas the liberals have implemented are good ideas. All right, so let's but let's just start with there. Is this not the biggest issue that in the states and in Canada that people complain about their politicians now? Everything is partisan. There might be a good idea that liberals have, and the conservatives will say we can't do that because that's a liberal thing. And in the States, there might be a good idea the Republicans have, and the Democrats say, we won't do that because that's a Republican thing. Isn't taking good ideas, regardless of who comes up with them, what we are wanting parties to do? I hear that all the time. Let's work together. If someone's got a good idea, let's use it. Who cares where the idea came from? If it's a good idea, let's use it. Now, again, I'm not arguing that every idea that Kathleen Wynne has been adopting is a good idea. What I'm saying is, though, that if you are a party that has come up with the idea, should you not, if you come up with an idea and another party decides to take it, should you not be happy they took it? Because you're not in power, which means if you had power, this is what you would want to happen. If you became the government, this is what you want to take place You didn't even have to win power now, and that's going to take place. If you're doing more than just playing politics, if you truly believe in what you're proposing, and you're not just doing it as a naked attempt to buy votes and win votes, if you completely and truly, authentically believe in the philosophies that you're espousing and the ideas you're putting forward, if another party comes along and adopts that and implements it, Rather than complaining about that, you should be thrilled with that. You didn't even have to get elected, and they're taking your ideas and putting them in. This province is therefore becoming more like what you want it to be. Whether that's good or bad for the overall population, that's a different discussion. But if you're the party that proposes this, and someone takes your idea... Rather than complain, you should be buying them a cake and sending it over there with a singing telegram. Thanks for doing what we want, even though we don't have the power to make this happen. You have actually now made the province more to our liking 
So, hey, we really appreciate that. When we hear a politician then saying, well, they're stealing our ideas and they're undercutting us, what that suggests to me, and I'm hoping I'm wrong, but I don't know that I am, but what it suggests to me is, well, wait a second, we're not really wanting these to go in because we truly believe it. We want these to be in our holster so we can win power and use this to get ourselves elected. Right? Got to go to break. But if you, let's say, Will's behind the glass. Let's say Will had five great ideas that he thought would make the province of Ontario better. Will has no ability to implement any of these. But if someone came along and took all five of them, and he truly believed those were ideas that will help people, that will make it a better society, and someone came along and said, Will, you know what? Terrific ideas. We're going to do all of those. Is Will going to say, holy cow. That's fantastic. We are going to make life better for people. Or is Will going to stand up and go, wait a second. You can't use those until I am somehow running for office and made premier so I can get, what's the what's the next part? All the glory. That's the problem with what I'm hearing here. This is not sounding like it's about what's best for the province. It's sounding like... It's what could get us elected, and then we could try and win more and more power by implementing these ideas. But I guess I shouldn't be surprised because that's politics everywhere. I've become very cynical about the idea that politicians, by and large, really, as their underlying principle and parties, not even individual politicians, I believe there are good individual politicians, I really do, but parties... As their underlying thing, they are desirous of power. And once we have power, we want to keep power. And if good ideas that help the population give us strength to keep power, that's a good idea. And we shouldn't let someone else take that from us. If the true thing is making a better society and making a better province or a better country, we don't care who takes our ideas. We're just thankful somebody did. I wait for any politician who says that they're upset because someone took their idea to explain to me then why? Why would you be upset if you came up with a good idea and somebody else thought it was a good idea and wanted to implement it and do what you say is going to make life better? Why could you possibly, how could you possibly be upset by that? Something to think about back after this. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.